History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 75, the long awaited communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. I'm keeping my wine cold. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard, and I'm here in the HAT studio with the Scott to my Amundsen. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello there, Peter. I'm just stepping outside to get myself some pemmican. Get yourself a nice pemmican. You're going to need it for the journey ahead. And we are joined, as ever, for that journey by the digester of dehydrated dinner. It's the judge himself, Mr. Paul Dursley. Good evening, gentlemen. Now, I have been gone for some time, and I've forgotten everything about the last episode, so would you mind, Ryan, reminding us in about 60 seconds? Yeah, but when do you want me to do it? I want you to do it now. In this week's episode, we headed to the southern continent in the esteemed company of Professor Roger Smith, our guest expert on all things Antarctica and the Triassic. We heard about some of his most celebrated finds, including the remains of a shovel-nosed lizard and a dog-sized dino called Jolly Roger. We learned what life is like chiselling fossils from the face of a frozen mountain, and all while I tried to crowbar in some awkward communist metaphors. There was pemmican, penguin poop, and a whole load of frozen facts. It was communist in Antarctica during the Triassic. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely, nice one, son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's going to tell you what he thought of me. He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes, it's all come back to me. A veritable masterpiece, a masterclass in bringing together a difficult topic in a difficult time period. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but of course my opinion is as dust on the breeze. It's meaningless. We are only here for the opinion of one man. Judge Dursley, what did you think? First impressions? It wasn't. It wasn't what? (laughs) You just said it was a masterpiece. I just said it wasn't. Ah, well, okay. Well, that's not a great start, I'll be honest. (laughs) It's time for a bribe, Brian, I think. Well, yes, that's true. And we did try and bribe the judge by sending you some lovely pemmican. Homemade pemmican, no less. Well, I wasn't aware that it was coming. That'll happen with pemmican. So, <laughs> so I thought someone had sent me a proctological sample. <laughs> yeah, it did look a little bit like that when we put it in the in the bag. Yes, it, it was sort of number two on the Bristol stool scale. Uh, yeah, well, apologies about that. But were you uh, willing to test it, to give it a taste test? Well, first of all, it took me a while to work out what it was, as it just came in a plain envelope. But I, th- I, w- I was going to eat it tonight with you. But I heard in the episode that, uh, unfortunately, it contained lots of nuts. And I'm afraid I'm a bit iffy when it comes to nuts. Oh, well, fully understand. You've got to be careful around nuts. Yes, I know. Just like this podcast. <laughs> hey, may contain nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a shame because we both tried it, didn't we, Pete? We certainly did. And I then realised I didn't need a two and a half thousand calorie snack in my life. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of calories stuffed into one stinky bar of dried meat. 
Yes, I, I actually thought that pemmican was more of a biscuit, I, I must admit. Yeah, I'd never even heard of it. I only came across the word, I think years ago, I was reading one of Shackleton or Scott's things and they were talking about pemmican and what it was. I just thought it was like a rusk, I must admit, with a bit of stuff in it. Because they used to feed it to their dogs, didn't they, as well? They did, yeah, it's true. As I said in the episode, it was invented by some of the indigenous peoples of North America. Pemmican actually means manufactured grease, which makes it sound even more tasty, doesn't it? Absolutely. Need to have a word with marketing those guys, don't they? Yeah. But yeah, so as I said in the episode, it has been taken on loads of journeys to the Antarctic, including Shackleton's expedition, as well as many of the other iconic missions. So Shackleton was a huge proponent of pemmican. He took 36,000 pounds of pemmican with him. He called it an excellent food for sledging journeys, giving five times the energy of ordinary meat. That's that's about 15 tonnes. Yeah, you can imagine the, so what's for dinner tonight? It's yeah. pemmican again. <laughs> so then there's the uh, Norwegian, Roald Amundsen. He was the guy who got to the South Pole first. Uh, his team took pemmican as well. And uh, it's said that they actually gained weight from eating it whilst trekking <laughs> across the South Pole. Uh, there was another Norwegian explorer and a bit of an erstwhile chef, a guy called Karsten Borsgrevnik. And he pioneered cooking pemmican with the blood of his sled dogs because he said that it gave extra vitamin C. Did he say that and was correct or is he just a madman <laughs> bleeding dogs? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Isn't there a story about Scott? I don't know whether it was the fatal mission or the one that they had earlier where they sort of had a hut and it was basically supplied by Fortnum and Mason in London. So it, their base camp was just full of Fortnum stuff. I believe one of yeah. the mistakes Scott made was taking all that bone china with him for the Sunday dinners. <laughs> well, talking of Scott, he was the only one who seems to have ignored the advice to take pemmican with him. And it's because of that that some think that the lack of nutrition may have influenced his decision making. Although one of the members of Scott's team, a guy called Apsley Cherry Garrard, he clearly saw the benefit of eating pemmican because he quoted in his memoir, many men, many minds, one stomach, pemmican. I mean, was he an advertising guy? Because I could see that on a poster. <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing? I mean, it basically just means that no matter who you are or where you come from, you know, whatever your preference in the world is, everyone's eating pemmican. Man, I still fancy a bit of spaghetti or something every now and then. There's only so much <laughs> pemmican I can handle, which apparently turned out to be a small nibble. That's <laughs> yeah, how much tiny, pemmican tiny I can <laughs> <laughs> But it's not just Antarctic explorers who rate it, because NASA has said that they are going to use pemmican for possible missions to Mars. So they've been testing recipes, and the version that's come out best contains 52% beef, 40% rendered beef, and 8% dried cherries, along with maple syrup and some other various spices. So missions to Mars will be on the back of a pemmican, much like the Antarctic expeditions. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, they said that their packets of pemmican can be stored at room temperature for three years and they tested it in space and they safely maintain their levels of nutrition even after exposure to radiation of space. Wow. Well, okay. yeah. well as, as you said in the episode, you know, uh, Antarctica and Mars are quite similar. And yet you see no pemmican restaurants. Would you like a starter? We probably don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like starter, main course and dessert all in one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, when McDonald's get hold of pemmican and you start getting uh, pemmican with fries, that's that's when you know that it's hit the mainstream. Oh man, would you like to supersize that? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Now, Ryan, you mentioned, well, I think actually Professor Smith mentioned the McMurdo base. Yes, I mentioned McMurdo as being like the potential capital city of Antarctica. Yeah, so that piqued my interest. I wanted to dig a bit into it because I liked this idea of what is the population of Antarctica and it's fairly uh, substantial. And McMurdo is, as you said, the biggest base. So McMurdo is between the Ross Sea and the Ross Ice Shelf, the Ross Ice Shelf itself being a floating area of freshwater ice that's fed by glaciers that come off the Antarctica. The only reason I'm telling you this is because in Wikipedia it says that fills a huge bay approximately the size of France. No way! <laughs> Finally, some web... Actually, it may not have been Wikipedia, but uh, the website I got this from was using the France as the official unit of measurement. And I thought, good people, they know what they're doing. But McMurdo Base is quite big. And what I found out was it's on Google Maps, but it's also Street View. So I went for a walk around McMurdo Base. No way! And I was quite surprised because I... In my head it was white snow everywhere but it's not there's actually roadways and those roads have names but it looks more deserty actually that you really get the sense of it being a desert but the main thing i want to say is that in summer there's a thousand people live in mcmurdo alone and there's over a hundred permanent structures in the town so yeah i took a little walk around the town uh, i went down arrival heights road i turned right on willie field road and i popped onto seaview avenue till i came to hut point drive and i went for a little walk down hut point drive and at the end of that is what I would call personally Antarctica's premier historic site Captain Scott's hut. The hut that Scott built in 1911, I believe it was, he prefabricated, he took it there. The hut was insulated with seaweed sewn into quilts between double panelled walls. And that's where they set out on their journey. And McMurdo Base is right there as well. Uh, and you can visit it today. It's designated a historic site or monument of Antarctica. Peter has confused two of Robert Falcon Scott's Antarctican huts. The hut he has described is known as Scott's Hut at Cape Evans, which was built by Scott and his team during their Terra Nova expedition in 1911. This hut is located about 15.5 miles, 25 kilometers, north of another hut, known as the Discovery Hut which was built during the Discovery expedition in 1902, which is now located just 300 meters from McMurdo Station. Thank you. You say you can visit it today, but I think you're missing a huge part of the getting there. <laughs> yeah, that is a challenge. And I did look into that as well, funnily enough. It's not as easy. Well, it's exactly as easy as you think it might be, which is to say not easy at all. Yeah. But what really surprised me was these designated historic sites of Antarctica, I would have thought were few and far between. There's nearly 100 of them. I think there's 96 different things that are sites in Antarctica, mm. if you fancy going on a maybe a walking tour or something, Ryan, I don't know. That's 96 things I'm never going to see in my life. Yeah, for sure. But uh, <laughs> of all those things, Scott's Hut looked like a, a reasonably easily accessed thing. I did love Professor Smith's description of flying out there. I, I just got this sense of excitement. You imagine going out there for the first time. Exactly. That's a, the experience that very, very few people can relate to, right? Yes, he, d he did sound very excited when he was talking about it, didn't he? I've got half a mind to go to Antarctica. It's an awkward trip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I can't imagine there's many five-star hotels there. Yeah, you have been on record as saying you will only stay in a five-star hotel and I'm not sure Antarctica has a huge amount of those available to you. But you're, you don't sleep on it. You just step on it a couple of times uh, and you have a nice <laughs> cruise ship that does it. So you're not going to mush on a dog sled across the ice. You're just going to no. drive past on a luxury vessel. I, th I think you have to sleep in a hut for one day, but I'd possibly put my rules aside for one day. 
day. Would you sleep in Scott's hut if you were given the choice? Oh, well, yes, I think if you if if you had the choice, I'd jump at it. I think that that would be fascinating. Well, it's still got a lot of his stuff in it, by all accounts. So you can pick up a few souvenirs while you're there. Well, he's not coming back for it, so. That's... <laughs> <laughs> couple of pin-up magazines stashed between <laughs> those double panel walls extra insulation well please judge dursley if you do find yourself on antarctica don't forget to take your judicial wig take a picture and we'll post it on twitter Right, so while we are talking about Antarctica, uh, I have a couple of clarifications to make. (laughs) Oh, is that what they're called now, is it? A clarification. It's a clarification, not an error. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I have a couple of clarifications about the discovery of Antarctica. So in the episode, I mentioned that American seal hunter John Davis uh, is sometimes credited as the first man to step onto the ice in 1821. And uh, the reason for this belief is because Davis uh, went around telling people that he did. Um, He basically had been hunting seals. And just claimed that he landed on the Antarctic mainland. Some believe it because he did sail around that area, so he might have done. But he never provided any evidence or any record of the landing. No coordinates, no nothing. He just said that he did it. But he did also have a uh, a habit of telling a lot of lies, uh, particularly at dinners, where he would try and entertain guests and journalists with uh, tall yarns about his uh, journeys at sea. So his supposed landing there hasn't been validated. That's why we've said no. Um, But side note, hardcore fans of this show might recall that John Davis has made an appearance before. He appeared on an episode on Bouvet Island where he claimed to have landed on Bouvet Island and no one believed it. (laughs) Oh, this guy. So, yeah, he's going around just telling people he's been landing on these (laughs) mysterious places when he clearly did not. Is that guy down the valve? Yeah, yeah, I've been there, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. Anyway, he retired a wealthy man and he went on to become a philanthropist. He donated uh, loads of money to uh, Harvard and to other schools in Boston. Which No, he didn't. He He just said he did. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's in doubt now, isn't it, about this guy? (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, so in terms of official records then, I said that the first guy to land in Antarctica was James Weddell, who reached there in 1823. But, and this is where the clarification comes in, this is only kind of true, because whilst he did step onto Antarctica, he didn't know that at the time. (laughs) He just reached 74 degrees south, uh, new southerly latitude. He knew that he'd reached really far south, but he didn't know where it was. So he just called it Cape Jane. And uh, it was a century later that it was revealed that he'd actually made it to Antarctica. They'd done the analysis and they went, actually, yeah, he was the first guy to make it. But it was an accidental landing. He didn't intend to go there. So that's, I guess, where the clarification comes in, because the first knowledgeable landing was 70 years after Weddell in 1895, when a Norwegian-Swedish explorer, Leonard Christensen, he deliberately landed in Antarctica. He was the first explorer, by the way, to take sled dogs and ponies with him. He is a lucky man in a way, though, because he died thinking he was the first and he didn't live to see the day when somebody else went 
actually, this guy yeah. was there 70 years before him <laughs> and have his record stripped from him. Damn it. You can, if you're the fastest or the highest jumper or runner or whatever, there's always someone come along and break your record. If you're the first of something, yeah. that generally can't be taken away from you, except well, this guy. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? That wasn't the thing that he was most proud about. So Christensen, when he returned to Norway, he took back with him a collection of biological specimens. And these were the things that he was most proud about. And uh, what did he bring back, Pete? Fossils. No. Uh, Algae. Algae. (laughs) (laughs) He brought back uh, samples of several lichen species, two new moss species, and several algae samples. Oh, my Lord. Can you imagine you're at the Royal Society and he's come back and you go, what have you got? What strange creatures have you got? (laughs) Moss. And algae. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So those are the first men to step onto Antarctic ice. But who was the first female? Well, in 1935, a Norwegian whaling expedition landed on the Antarctic mainland. The crew departed the ship, along with the captain's wife, a 60-year-old Caroline Mickelson, who became the first woman to step foot on Antarctica. I like that we can call her the whaling woman of Antarctica. (laughs) (laughs) Is that one of the 96 sites? (laughs) So, yeah. So, this, uh, yeah. So, she stepped off on the ice. Again, like Weddell, she didn't realize that she was the first woman on Antarctica and uh, she died not knowing and it was only later like a couple of decades after she died that it was discovered that yeah she really was the first woman there but she set a precedent because other female explorers and scientists then followed in 1947 Jackie Ron and Jenny Darlington they were wives of expedition members and they became the first women to stay an entire winter in Antarctica because they were considered part of the support team which leads me though, to another clarification around the population numbers, because I said there are no native Antarctican population. However, there are some. Not many, about a dozen. Oh, come on. This is not a valid argument. No, there are. There are are not many, but about a dozen people. So these are people that have been born on the Antarctic continent. The first was Emilio Marcos Palma, born January 7th, 1978 at Esperanza Base. It's an Argentinian research station. And it's said that his parents were not expecting a child. They claimed that his birth was a surprise. But others say that the birth was deliberate, uh, a a deliberate political attempt by the government. They sent this pregnant woman over there uh, to give birth so that they could place an official claim on Antarctica for Argentina. But he is considered the first native Antarctican. Despite the fact he has then spent his adult life keeping away from Antarctica, he does nothing to do with polar research. And in fact, he avoids publicity entirely. I bet every time he hits a border and he shows them his Antarctica passport, they're like, come on, man, that can't be real. It has place of birth, though, doesn't it? Oh, a passport. Antarctica Ah. would be amazing. So in the tease at the beginning of the episode, I did mention that we will learn why the future has wings. And uh, then we never mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) Never spoke of it again. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it was a super tease. Uh, and the reason why I didn't mention it was just purely for time. Um, I wanted to make sure that the episode didn't run too long. So we just cut out a section. But um, I thought it was interesting. So I thought I'd bring it here to the verdict. So for the past two decades, Professor Smith has been studying the end Permian mass extinction, he said. This is the largest mass extinction to date. And he's tried to understand how it occurred and how life recovered afterwards. And while I was talking with him, I asked him for his opinion about the global challenges that we face today and whether or not he thinks that we're heading towards another extinction event. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll play you this clip. I have been asked about the sixth extinction. Uh, in fact, more recently, it's becoming quite uh, a topic. And my sort of perspective on the sixth extinction is that although I understand that the mass extinctions happen on Earth and are unpredictable, the sort of climate change that has been induced by human emissions is of the order of magnitude of the changes that happened at the Triassic boundary, but that at that time it was caused by massive volcanic eruptions. But the carbon dioxide and methane emissions from the volcanoes are of the order of magnitude as those from burning of fossil fuels. But of course, it went on for a lot longer than has gone on right now. So as take-home messages, then, yes, we are heading for an extinction event. Whether it turns out to be a mass extinction event is simply how much more rise in temperature. We're at 1.5 degrees centigrade now, uh, mean annual temperature rise globally. At the Permatrassic boundary, we estimated it went up as much as 10 degrees centigrade, but uh, over a period of 100,000 years rather than over 100 years. So we are still debating as to whether it's a mass extinction, but certainly the climate change now is of the similar trend as has happened before. Even if we stop burning fossil fuels now, it still won't change the, the damage that's been done. But certainly, if it doesn't climb anymore, if it doesn't get warmer and warmer, we as humans and all the uh, animals and plants that are living with us will be able to migrate and adapt. Migrating is one of the things that humans have difficulty in doing, simply because there's far too many of them. So that's another big factor that will play out in due course, is the overpopulation of humans has got to be curbed. But from the perspective of the survivors, now what happens after the extinction, so the lessons we can learn from work in the earliest Triassic is that, yes, life goes on and goes on quite successfully, but it is different. It is very different. So if you are not particularly keen on the human race, for instance, then it is of no consequence if the human race disappears from the planet. And probably the next most populated animal would not be primates, in fact. There are much better, more better adapted animals to the new conditions that will happen. And birds might be the very next rulers of the planet. I say that because although the dinosaurs went extinct uh, at 65 million years ago, birds are actually living dinosaurs. So they are surviving dinosaurs. They had uh, adaptations to survive the 
65 million year old extinction. And in the early Triassic, or the Triassic was the time when bird-like animals, that is, that is the archosaurs, actually rose to prominence. And it was after the end Permian mass extinction that archosaurs actually took over and dominated during the age of dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are archosaurs. And the surviving dinosaur, which are birds, they have a long history of survivability and resistance. So the birds haven't had their heyday yet. And so the Triassic is a good example of how the global ecosystems of the world, not just of little patches of it, can change and will change and do change. With that sort of perspective, it is really encouraging that life will go on, just not as you know it. So there you go. Life will go on, but just not as you know it. Well, he's absolutely right, Jim. Jim? Isn't that something out of one of your science fiction rubbish? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It really is. Well done. I love it when Dursley does popular culture. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to living amongst the bird people of the future. Yeah. I think you'll make a good bird slave. Uh, uh, (laughs) No, you've got it wrong there then. People won't exist. He's absolutely you're right you know humanity is only transient i'll do my time in the mines don't worry the <laughs> trill mines with a song in my heart <laughs> humanity is only transient i suppose the interesting thing about humanity is what well, it's the only species that can knowingly destroy itself from the planet yeah knowingly do you know, I bet if you dangled your pemmican on a string outside your house, you'd have birds all over it. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to go to the park and I'm going to feed the birds. Well, again, you know, Mr Hitchcock got it right. He did. We have a selection of magpies outside our house who like to watch me as I go about my business. I think they're probably the ones I'm going to befriend and uh, I'll be enslaved by them, ideally. Well, that was a lot of good stuff, Ryan. I enjoyed it very much. But we have come to the end of the line and it's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I've donned my special Arctic white robes for the occasion. <laughs> With the fur lining. <laughs> well, yes, it's, 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 you know, stoked in its winter coat, ermine. Ah, ermine. <laughs> your Honour, as usual, if we could start proceedings by asking for your verdict on factual content well i think this is a difficult one because most of the stuff that was identified was pure hypothesis which of course could never happen but the mitigating factor is the the randomizer threw up these categories and what we have to be honest and say that you obviously had didn't fiddle it because nobody would ever want to have that one <laughs> indeed so i'm afraid i can only give you a C minus. What? Oh, it's a grim start. He doesn't look happy. Let's move on quickly to the second question. Entertainment value. Were you not entertained? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go on. Just give me the grade. Well, I, 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 I did find it very entertaining. Oh. You asked, was I not entertained? And I said no, which is the correct answer. Oh, he was not not entertained. He pulled the double bluff on you, Ryan. Oh, okay. All right, that's good. It was entertaining to see how you actually got away with with the brief. All right. So, your verdict for entertainment factor? I enjoyed it. The the sketches, I thought, were 
pretty amusing. So I will give you for this B plus. B wow! Plus. This is looking good. B plus is almost an A P. It is almost can it you, now. Can you every time you get a B or a B plus, you say it's almost an A? That that's like saying when you've got five out of six lottery numbers, you've almost won the lottery. And the final. The ineffable, the ever mysterious Dursley Factor. Well, I, th I think this has to be related to the last one because, again, it was an intriguing subject. Um, I would have liked a bit more about uh, the Triassic, uh, about where Antarctica was during the Triassic. Uh, so I will taint it slightly, but I will still give you B. Nice. Oh, his little face lit up there. Okay, well, this is it then, the final verdict. Now, before the judge passes his ruling, Ryan, yeah. this is your opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, yeah. please make your plea. Okay. Now. Uh, this one took a while to pull together, and I do apologise to everyone for waiting, but we got there in the end, and we had a lovely guest who was very knowledgeable. Please be kind. <laughs> please be kind. <laughs> <laughs> that was your plea. <laughs> Please be kind, comrade. Comrade? Well, Your Honour, moving on quickly, the defendant stands before you now. Have you reached your verdict? Yes, I have reached my verdict. In that case, respectfully, I ask for your ruling. OK. This would have been a pretty good grade. However, I have to take into account that it did take you six weeks to prepare it. <laughs> Uh, and there was a considerable amount of procrastination. <laughs> and I'm profoundly disappointed that you still have your pancreas. But I am going to dock a point from what I would have given you. So I am going to give you B minus. That's a B minus that deserved more. You've had a point docked. Ryan, any responses to this incredible grade? Well, I'm not going to turn down a B minus, am I? I mean, it all it's all good. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, happily. a B minus is almost a B plus. <laughs> Which is A adjacent. I feel well, like for he's me. mocking me. <laughs> well, for me, Ryan, it was an A plus plus episode, as you know. So we know that the judge is a hard taskmaster and a difficult audience to please. That's true. But uh, I just want to say, again, a huge thank you to Professor Roger Smith for his time and his generosity in uh, helping me get to grips with communism in the Triassic in Antarctica. Okay, so that is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd absolutely love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And you can definitely do that if you rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, because those ratings, those reviews really help bring the show to new listeners. That's right. Now, if you are on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post trivia tidbits, news and photos. 
pictures of pemmican, for example. And we'll be back again soon with our next episode, number 76, Between a Rock and a Hard Place in the Tropic of Cancer in the 9th century. But that's all later. In the meantime, for now, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... Now, I've been gone for some time and I've forgotten everything about the last episode. So, Ryan, would you mind reminding us in about 60 seconds? Yeah, but when do you want me to do that? Oh, sure, guy, sure, guy, sure, guy, sure, guy. guy. (laughs) All right, let's listen in. Hi, come on up. Hi, that's it, but nothing this time, but if you come on next week, you have a great adventure. Thank you, goodbye. This is like a romance. That's a B plot. Yeah! Do you want to do it from the top? How dare you?